ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I'm Jasmine Elmer and this is Legit Classics. How this is going to work is I'm going to get someone that knows some stuff about things in their field. I'm going to take the things I know about the stuff in my field, bring this all together and give you something bigger than either of us can do on our own. Whether you're here for the lulls or the learns, buckle up. It's time to get legit. Okay, so today's guest is the amazing Andrew Hunter Murray and we're going to be chatting thrillers, which don't think about the Michael Jackson song, although that is running in my head probably in the background the entire time that we're going to be talking. But we're going to be talking about thrillers in a modern sense and obviously in an ancient sense too. And, you know, Andrew, you're a journalist, author of thrillers. Now, do we call them dystopian thrillers? Are we, are we going to be that specific or are we happy with thrillers? I don't think we need the dystopian bit. I mean, <laughs> the, the, okay. the, they're neither here nor now. Both of the both of the books I've written so far are kind of somewhere other than yeah. here and now. Um, I, I mean, I've, I sometimes define them as adventures, which is a very oh, good adventures. loose catch-all term. Um, like. Yeah, and I think it's a bit underused in publishing these days. You know, you're obviously a writer. You write for QI, and uh, sorry, you write for Private Eye, and you are a QI elf. I like to mix those two up. They sound too similar. I mean, you could. <laughs> make it a bit easier for me couldn't you now this elf thing you've got to explain this to me so how have you been called elves i mean how is santa yes. how's he doing how's she doing <laughs> uh, santa is currently she because at qi yes. where i work we are the, we are the qi elves so we do the research that uh, goes into the show each year on bbc2 and uh the, i think stephen fry the original host of qi gave us the nickname one year very okay. early on and it just kind of stuck as a kind of fun you know, way for us to describe ourselves, you know, the people squirreling away in the background, finding out I was about to say, so you're sort of foraging in the background yeah. looking for all of the cool facts that we all know and love from the show. Basically, we sp- we, so we work at QI all year round and we spend uh-huh. a lot of time doing research for the show. So we would go away for months and months and um, come up with a, a huge pile of facts and questions and notes uh, all related to whatever the subjects this year are. So we've just finished uh, the T series of QI. So, you know, I, my show was all about trains and trams and travel and transport and trundling. And that was, a, you know, <laughs> sort of anything, anything in that area beginning with T, the Tour de France and, and you know, ex- well, all thrillers? of that stuff. Thrillers? Thr- That's and today. thrillers too. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So. I mean, and you're a podcaster. So I know we've just kind of interrupted mm. your intro with all these little bits of information, <laughs> but what can't you do? That's a huge range of skills there. Lots I'm very impressed. Lots of things. Do. So lots just one thing you could give us that you can't do. Oh, yeah. Just one um, thing. 
I can't, uh, I can't garden very well at all. Oh, what can't I do? I can't fly a small plane. I can't ski. <laughs> I can't sew. Uh, I can't do loads and loads of stuff. I can't fly a small plane either, which won't come as a surprise <laughs> to anyone. So anyway, anyway, multi-talented is what I was trying to guess at. Thank you very much. And I'd love to talk to you today about a few areas, you know, kind of, you know, around the theme of thrillers, which I'm going to mm. go into in a minute. But before I do, I always start with my guests. You know, this is a classics podcast. Not everybody uh, gets to study classics or experience it. So my question to you first is, did you do that? Did you ever study anything classical at school? Yeah. I know you come up with lots of classics in QI, so you probably come across <laughs> loads of facts from, from that outlet. But did you study anything? Yeah, I did. I was very, uh, very lucky to. So I, cool. I studied Latin until the oh. age of 18. Um, I oh, didn't do any of I did the International Baccalaureate, which is a, a oh, very weird international. Yeah, it's a, a system oh. lots of people... You know, it's it's slightly obscure and weird, um, but oh, you get to study three subjects at a standard level and then three at a slightly more uh, complicated level. And Latin yeah. was one of the ones I picked to oh. be a sort of higher level subject, as they call it. Nice. So, yeah, studied lots of that. Um, what did we do? It was it was lots of quite hard Latin. I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> that's like all you remember. Lots of no, difficult translations. It's a positive experience for classics. Oh, it was don't... amazing. Yeah, okay, good, I good. Mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really did enjoy it. We we um, book books two and six of the Aeneid. I think were oh, yeah. the ones they really yeah. focused on, which are two yes. of the really fun ones. You know, yeah, they are. They're good ones. Before the quite complicated horse trading of the second half of it. Yeah, um, yeah, correct. And um, we did some Cicero too. That was amazing. Oh, no. I shouldn't say oh no. I mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to get lose all my listeners because I'm, I'm not a fan of Cicero. Don't tell oh, really? anyone. Okay. Is that personality-based or is it language-based? He's or just is annoying. It... I mean, he just right. goes on and on and on and on and on. I mean, can you imagine what he was like in real life? I mean, <laughs> I mean for those of you who don't know, you know, Cicero, he's a Roman statesman, lawyer. Much of the, the work yeah. we have of him is to do with his court cases and kind mm. of what he's outlying his arguments so from a latin point of view it's kind of cool because you get to learn all the different devices and there's interesting amazing arguments rhetorical, so, yes yeah, absolutely so great frills, big tick yeah. just being a normal person like knocking around in 2022 <laughs> not so keen i just mm. think he would be he would be annoying wouldn't he he'd just but oh i know the answers to everything shut up and listen and he would just go on for like 18 pages like he does in his writing if, anyway. you're defining him basically as the jacob rees mogg of uh, the ancient <laughs> world you know i think oh, if, if God, <laughs> yeah i think yeah. if jacob rees mogg could release edited transcripts of his speeches he probably would so <laughs> yes exactly no so you know it's good that you've done some classics then that's great and i mm. imagine it does it come up in your work sometimes obviously like I said for QI but does it come up in your wider work as well does it ever influence your writing or, or other things I and mean, obviously we'll get into that a little bit possibly in some of these sections but I'm sure it does I mean the, the <laughs> I, find, I find it interesting just how out there the stories are of, of I mean mm -hmm. the, the stories like the Aeneid are, are, are very surreal and I guess they were an attempt in some ways to, to well they, they had lots of roles didn't they I mean the Aeneid was slightly a political text it was slightly a, a metaphysical text it was slightly you know it was slightly an amazing story it was an attempt to justify the roman people to themselves and you know how it sort of uh, stamp what the origins of the roman people were so they all do lots of different things i'm sure i haven't done <laughs> no you've done it one Fantastic. Thing in just, any of the books you know i'm just sort of wondering whether i just let you speak again for half an hour and let you cover <laughs> actually i mean if you want weird stories we've got a great one coming up later Ooh, yeah. on today 
so you buckle up and wait okay. for that one. But the very first area I want to deep dive. So I'm going to I'm going to be quite, you know, kind of open minded about how I'm going to define thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to ask you to kind of follow me on a journey with this. And one area, if you think about all the subgenres of thriller that you can get today, um, one area, because I'm a bit obsessed with it, is monsters. Now, the idea of a mm. monster. Now, you might consider that a kind of boundary genre between horror and thriller. So I don't want to get too stuck in uh, in kind of definition, but mm. monsters, because I've spent a lot of my academic life doing monsters and I'm a bit obsessed with them. So we've got to chat about them because they're cool and there's lots to learn about them. But, you know, before I get into why I love them and why they're interesting, we know that most of the famous stories in Greek mythology, for example, contain a version of monster Hmm. so we're going to be chatting a bit about myth today as well as some kind of some kind of historical stuff as well but the question i want to ask you and i'm going to kind of explain a bit why i think this is important as well is how has our interest or lack of interest in monsters changed over time so if we ask people to kind of imagine the big famous monsters. I mean, maybe you can sort of freewheel any of ones that you might know now but we might think of classical monsters Frankenstein is one that pops up in my head as quite, mm. a, you know, quite a, a key one. And I guess in the in, today, there's a lot of Marvel comics with monsters and the Hulk and, and and things like that. But I'm considering now books and thrillers. And mm. where is the monster in that today? You know, kind of have have we changed our opinion of monsters? Have they dropped out of popularity, or have they sort of shape shifted and morphed into different versions? Have you got an opinion about that? I think I have. It's 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 a very tricky one to define what a monster is because mm. you know in the sort of early modern period you had lots of monstrous individuals who were human but different somehow. You know the mm. the boy who was entirely covered in fur from head to toe, or the you know the monstrous individuals of of nineteenth century freak shows. I think today there is a, a big preoccupation with un, with understanding where monsters come from, understanding and empathising and sympathising uh, with what was previously defined as the monstrous. And that probably has, I wonder if it arises from a, a change in our sense of ourselves. I wonder if the fact that Frankenstein's monster is one of the first sympathetic mon- monsters in literature. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, Caliban from The Tempest, what's that? That's yes, about yeah. si- the early 17th century. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know of... Um, any ancient works where you're seeing um, the origin story of Cerberus and, you know, going into, <laughs> like... The, no, but this is, of, this is really interesting, yeah. actually, Andrew, because, you know, you are right, but also perhaps it's not common knowledge that there are, you know, there are ancient authors that are sympathetic to certain characters, such as Medusa, oh, really? where you get um, authors that will tell the, sto- the story... I mean... I've got to be a bit careful because are they intending to be sympathetic or are they simply weaving a different tale here? So Mm. I've got to be a bit careful. But, for example, with Medusa, there are authors that tell the side of her, you know, kind of damnation and kind of her humanity and how she was accursed by the gods um, rather than just this snaky-head woman that gets, you know, massacred by by Perseus. So, you know, there are that that does exist in the ancient world. But what I think you've touched upon a really important point here, which is, Monsters in the ancient world are, are physical creatures. You're right. You know they kind of. I ima- we imagine them as non, very non-human. They all embody quite non-human characteristics, either in their behaviour or in their appearance, and it, and they also live on the periphery of of kind of the known world. 
What I think happens there is monsters symbolise the other often, mm. any kind of other. It can be the notion of uncivilised, so people or things that are uncivilised. It can be the unknown locations that haven't been explored yet. Uh, peripheral worlds where maybe magic and superstition kind of interact with the physical world that we live in. And of course, they embody their own particular things in any given tale. So sometimes they're there just as a conduit for some kind of hero to kill them and do something. Something for Hercules to wrestle, basically. Exactly, because Hercules needs to do something, (laughs) otherwise he's not going to be a hero. If he's just knocking around on street corners, waiting for everyone to call him a hero, it's a bit boring, isn't it? So we need them just as kind of, you know, like, you know, parts of stories, you know, taking on, taking on roles. But the other thing that's really interesting is a lot of rationalisation. Monsters kind of are, are rationalising. So when they're looking at the world around them, they don't understand the things. A really good example is Typhon, the, the monster Typhon, who Zeus famously fought, and he got pushed under Mount Etna. And so is the example of why we have volcanic eruptions, because he's underneath mm. the ground and he's furious and stuff like that. So... Part of the question then might be, do you feel that maybe the way that we understand what a monster is has changed? Because we've explored the world now. There aren't really many boundary worlds where we think, I haven't been there, wonder what's knocking around down there. Um, You know, we sort of have scientific explanations for things, so we don't need to rely on monsters as examples of these things or explanations. So do you think we've changed because we know stuff as well? I think so. I think that's the case, although... Your sort of counterexample there about Medusa is really interesting because what I certainly trade on or assume broadly is that people in the past weren't necessarily like us. They may not have had a conception Mm -hmm. of themselves in the same way that we think of ourselves as discrete individuals or fitting into a society or your opinions about religion will hugely affect your sense of what a person is, basically. Of course. And if you were in a society, you know, 500 years ago, which had a very different conception of itself... That will change the way you think of the monstrous. So I think it seems likely that today there is a lot more understanding about the entire nature of the world. I mean, about every every subject under the sun. Yeah. So that must surely have changed what we think of as the monstrous. You know, does it has it made us more empathetic? There, there was a really interesting. Um, it's something I think of quite a lot because I, I walk through. Um, St. James's Park quite a bit, and there are, they keep uh, birds there. There are very nice birds. Uh, so there are some beautiful pelicans there. Um, and when they were introduced to St. James's Park, a, a collection of rare birds in about 1850-something, um, people there just threw stones at them and killed them in large numbers. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that's what? a society what? with a very different idea of what a bird is and what a person is and the co- correct relationship between those two and that's only 150 years ago so yeah i hear what you're saying (laughs) so (laughs) i find this fascinating because because i don't know if i agree with you but what you're saying Mm. absolutely has some truth when i consider the ancient world i consider the classical world because you know we talk about these rationalizing figures now the romans particularly are rationalizing mythological figures and monstrous figures so there are lots of descriptions in the text like pliny and other people that try to take Mm. Um, what is traditionally the kind of mythological monster and say, well, hang on a minute, this probably isn't true. We we kind of... So that Mm. kind of relationship with self, as you say, and understanding of things evolves even within the classical period. So I don't know if it's as easy to say that this is kind of, you know, something that is changing as time goes on in a linear fashion, but it's going up and down, I think, in different generations. So um, that's a lot... Anyway, I don't want to talk about monsters. We'll be here all day talking about monsters because I love them. But um, it's really interesting to think about because I don't know if this is right. I might have got this wrong because 
I have perhaps not followed it enough, but I just feel like we're not as in love with the monster story as we were in the ancient world. And monsters are in most mm. stories in, in Greek mythology. And I just feel like, how, how, what are these modern monsters like today? I mean, what are they? Like you say, I think they're much more human. Mm. We were kind of interested in the monstrous within us as people. Like the monster's almost contained within some kind of human shell oh, in yeah, some yeah, way yeah. And, and conflicts. Um, which is definitely quite different to the ancient world where there is a big line between human and, <laughs> and you know, monster. And, they, and when you mix them, like the Minotaur, it's all complete, particularly freaky. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you, think, do you think that's true then? Do you think that we would say that we're more interested in the monsters inside us? It's almost like a psychological experiment now, a monster, than I it think is so. a, a thing to be feared in, well, in the periphery lands. Something I've tried to do in both books so far is present and build characters and people who are on one level monstrous as in they've done something awful or they might be planning something awful but to simultaneously present some kind of account of why they might feel that their actions are justifiable or necessary those are i think the most interesting monsters no one ever thinks that they're doing the wrong thing you know, mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. has a good reason for doing what they do. Yeah. Um, it's it's very hard to acknowledge to oneself that you might have done something catastrophically wrong. I mean, even, you know, the smallest everyday behaviours we we, <laughs> we justify to ourselves. No, I, I, I was definitely right to shout at that um, child in the supermarket. What, or whatever, you know, what are whatever. you doing, Andrew, in your, your days off? <laughs> Just accosting small done, children and shouting at them. actually, no, I, I, I was right to do that. You know, he, he, it, was a, it was an educational experience. Whatever it might be. <laughs> so, you, <laughs> um, so the, yeah, that element of, of the monstrous is, is definitely internalised now, I think, in lots of characters. Yeah. And do you look at great... Um, Characters who are being built, let's say, for the screen these days, someone like Logan Roy in Succession is clearly a monster in, in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. And yet the strength of the show is in showing you just a little glimpse of the scars on their back. And you think, ah, I can see how you might have ended up the way you are. Yeah. And I find that fascinating. I mean, I think those are wonderful character moves whenever they happen, especially yeah, if they're no, brief. That, I mean- I understand entirely. That is that is exact. I think that I think we've hit the nail on. I think we solved this. I think we understand now that <laughs> monsters were this other other non-human sort of thing to be feared. And as time goes on, we've almost got closer and closer to one another, and that mm. and the, we're more interested in the monstrous inside us. I think that's. And it's not to say there are no monster stories anymore. Of course there mm. are, but we. I think we're more fascinated by by that, and that's really interesting. Before we move on from this sort of monstery bit. Have you got a, fa- a favourite monster of classical mythology? Like, have you got oh. one that you think, they're the one, love those, that, that guy, that woman, that, that group, whatever it might be? Is there something you think, oh, yeah? Oh, gosh, that's tough. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm going to come up with anything off the far off the beaten track. Don't need you to. Know, I'm not going to come up with something far outside Just the labyrinth. Just keep it real. Or... <laughs> 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 um, um, I've always had a soft spot for the Cyclops. Um Oh, nice. Because that is a quite, he is, you know, he is clearly a terribly unpleasant kind of guy, <laughs> but also you can slightly see how he's ended up the way he is. And I think Odysseus yeah. would be annoying. Um, it is, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. For those of you who don't know this tale, you need to go read it. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. But, yeah, I mean, he's a good choice because, obviously, he he actually embodies the idea of the uncivilised, the non-Greek. Right. So in all of his behaviour... 
Um, actually, you've picked a character that I'd say does embody quite a lot of human characteristics yeah, yeah. And, and kind of gets at the kind of moral of what the other is like compared to the Greeks. Because I'm always afraid, the Greeks yeah. are always afraid of the other. Um, so that's a good choice. I like that. I like oh, that. I thought, you might, I thought you might pick. <laughs> no, I just good. It's good. So another little area I wanted to chat to you about is, mm. uh, again, borderline thriller uh, kind of mm. subgenre of... I'm going to call it like bloodthirst and gore. So I kind of, mm. a, hor- a, a version of horror that is kind of bloodthirsty um, and gory, I guess, you know. And this is super fascinating because, I mean, if you ask anyone what they think about the Romans, mm. very quickly they will come up with gladiators, mm. bloodlust. Oh, yeah, they love to decimate the army and kill mm. one in ten men. They they love to throw Christians uh, into the arena, they love to crucify people. They enjoy watching bloody gladiatorial combats, mm. which obviously I'm not negating those things. Of course, they happened and they are <laughs> absolutely true. And the Romans do have this kind of odd relationship with, with this, but I mean there are reasons for that. Of course, it's a big thing in the ancient world in general. But thinking classically, blood gore is something that they are seeing especially in Roman society more frequently than we do today Mm. and I want to know like do you think we've lost our appetite for gory content and I thought I would have said yes recently but then squid game and all these other (laughs) things started and everyone has got super popular so you know kind of in in the genre of thriller if you like you know are we losing our appetite for for that kind of thing are we and and why do you think that's the case if if that's a huge question I, I don't know if we are. I mean, I personally am squeamish sometimes about putting Me any too. gore into what I write. But okay. and sometimes and sometimes I'll read through something I've written that is a bit gory, and I think, oh my god, who wrote this? You know, <laughs> what sicko um, put these words to paper? So yeah, so so that's just that's that's where I'm coming from in all this. Um, and actually, on screen, I have a pretty low tolerance for gore. I think the main criterion for me about whether something qualifies as gory is 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 how this is a very obvious and unsurprising point it's just about how real it can be made as in Uh the alien films are extremely quote-unquote gory but the the violence in them is is kind of so cartoonish and so absurd that you don't really feel it Mm. you know Mm. whereas you could show someone being just flicked once in the head and and (laughs) <laughs> the, the way you're filming it or the way you're yeah. describing it or the way the emotion, the, you know, the emotions that go into I'm it can make that more upsetting than um, the, the goriest of scenes in Alien versus Predator or whatever it is you want to see, you know. No, I get it. Um, I mean, I, I recently rewatched original Robocop, having not seen it oh, for yeah. about 15 years. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember. I sat there and I was watching it and I was like, I had this like this romantic tale of like, oh, this guy. And I remember he had this family and it's this tragic story and he gets turned into Robocop and he's trying to find out who he was and this kind of travel into who kind of who he is. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's a great story. Actually, no, 90% of it is pure horrendous, horrendous 1980s gore. It's extremely um, violent. Yeah. And I recoiled a bit, right? And I was like, I can't actually watch this. And it made me, and that's where I got to thinking, especially in prep for this pod, mm. uh, to think about Romans and Greeks. Let's go more with the Romans. They're so much more comfortable with that. And I was thinking, Why? And one of my ideas for why is, you know, these societies, and if we do go back to Greece, you know, especially in Greece, where there is a lack of professional army, of course, that changes. And we have Sparta and then we have that in the Roman period, there is a professional army. But 
these ordinary, and I will be honest, men take up arms. In fact, they and they have to defend themselves quite regularly in their lives, even if it's against, you know, kind of their for their own safety, protecting their own property, lack of, you know, mm. there's no police forces as such, not in the way that we'd recognise them today. So actually, violence is closer to them because they probably mm. experienced it a little bit more, perhaps even in battle. That might be a factor in why we today, we are far more sanitised. I mean, obviously, there's reasons why this happened. We could talk about um, Christianity in the Roman Empire and how how it became mm. not okay. As I totally, by the way, want to put out there, I agree with. We shouldn't be hacking <laughs> people to death for public fun, you know. Um, but you know th- that changes things as well. And I guess our appetite moved away from it. But you know what, Andrew? Mm. What I was interested in is I don't know if that's true. And I'm obviously talking mm. about Western cultures here. Much of that, I, I mean, I'm not. I, we could talk a lot more about other cultures where perhaps they have a different. Uh, kind of relationship with blood and gore than we do and also um, is it like, is it kind of is it uncool or weird if you go around going oh i love blood lust i love it when it <laughs> people's heads is that like is that why is it that we actually do like it but we're afraid to say it i don't know what do you think i think it's a, there's probably there is probably a universal human streak that's interested in it but the amount which a society you know permits encourages or discourages it can change hugely over the years and if you have got a society where lots and lots of people join the army for 20 years and are going around you know subduing gauls or whatever it was they might have been up to in the roman empire that that completely <laughs> changes the relationship with <laughs> yeah, it, blood yeah. and violence and yeah at, at the you know western europe in particular has been going <laughs> until this year, uh, was on a very, uh, you know, what's felt like a lovely, comfortable glide path away from war and gore. And, you know, you can go your whole life without experiencing um, military conflict. Possibly, You know, some, some people yes. have done that since the end of the Second World of War. Course. So, so yeah, yeah that, pro- that probably has changed things. But I, th- I think there is always a bit of fascination in that subject. Um, very weirdly, I was in Sparta uh, last year. And um, mm-hmm. it's incredibly dull. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's like a normal market town. It's like Chelmsford or something. It's yeah, just... It's, um, it's so it's funny a... you say that because um, <laughs> you you just said I was in Sparta and I thought, am I, yeah. should I say, I quickly thought in my head, I don't know if I'm going to say that it's an awful site because... You know, I don't think it's. Uh, yeah, it's not awful. It's just you can't if you're, see if you're going it's... there hoping for the three hundred experience. Um, <laughs> d- don't. Uh, there's there's one statue of the the very famous King Leonidas who you know yeah. led the defence of the Battle of the Mopolian. But but it's just this huge militaristic statue of him. You know, naked, sword out, amazing um, mohawk helmet in a completely boring suburban business district. It's like it's, it's a, it's a, well, cause it's just that, a normal town these days. Isn't that kind days, of interesting? You know? I mean, maybe, yeah, I'm just, maybe I'm just being like geeking out here as a classicist, but okay. The reason I said it's dull to me, I went to, um, there's a site, the Temp- temple of Artemis or Thea, I think is, which is one okay. of the Spartan temples. And it was next, it was literally a rubbish dump was like next to a few right. ruins. And it was just really odd, but actually I was a bit, you know, I was in my early 20s and I thought, oh, this is rubbish and walked off. But maybe now that I've got slightly more sophisticated in my <laughs> understanding of classics, I might kind of like that um, kind of contrast and juxtaposition of modern and ancient. There might be something yeah. kind of interest in that. But there are some sites, obviously, you know, like that, like have you been to Delphi? Delphi carries this beautiful no. arc. So Del- if you go to Delphi, you'll feel the wondrousness of that place. Right. Um, 
So I just think you've got to find your places, haven't you? But yeah, so don't, so don't, I feel bad. I think the Spartan Tourist Board are going to I don't think there is a Spartan Tourist Board. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think, think there, is there, there aren't enough. And it's kind of a funny thing because, you know, that's, it's, it's a good thing that, that Sparta isn't having to defend itself against uh, the Persians anymore. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice for us all to live in boring normal market towns effectively yeah. <laughs> but what are we it's 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 just very curious what are we celebrating yeah. here what's the what's the link yeah. between that sparta and this one yeah i mean um, spartans are a great example of of a of a you know civilization of people that that hold war up so high and mm. therefore are very comfortable with with gore and and and, and blood bloodlust and things like that and in fact you know glorify that i didn't see a single baby abandoned on a hillside the whole time I was in Sparta. I'm very pleased that they're not doing that anymore. Um, I'm glad that we've moved away from that. It's horrifically barbaric. But um, yeah, I mean, I find this all uncomfortable. I probably, probably hear it in my voice. I'm a bit like, oh, I don't know about this, this blood mm. and this gore. And I still don't know how I feel about it. I mean, so many of the Greek myths, of course, are very full of graphic details you know yeah. they love to tear people limb from limb you know like the, the famous story of orpheus being torn limb from limb and right. you have the back eye um you know women that <laughs> tear people up and you you know you have these stories there are kind of stories of cannibals you know there are all sorts mm. of these sort of gory details um and they're usually connected to a madness, you know, kind of a, a madness right. might descend upon these people that want to do that or indeed some kind of punishment mm. um and you know, as with all myth, there is always a meaning behind this, and often it's women tearing people up. So you know, right. beware of the women; they might mm. tear you up. <laughs> um, just in case you're wondering. Um, but yeah, I just, I just can't think now about how popular this genre is. Well, if you, if you look at the uh, the best selling books list every week in the oh, Sunday yeah. Times, I you'll think do that more than I do. No, but. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Five, like five or six out of them, will be crime or thriller books every week. It's mm. a it's a hugely popular genre, um, and there is something incredibly. It's 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 a little bit like the you know the Agatha Christie cozy crime. Now, admittedly, Agatha Christie never really showed you the blood, but um, yeah. these days I think the trend in thriller writing and crime writing is is, is oh, to show look, the blood, and it's it's enormous. Yeah, I'm a massive massive thriller fan. I, all the books mm. I read are thrillers, but do you know what I like? Psychological thrillers, and that's I, that's why I'm asking yeah. where what is the role in these top books? We won't name them. Um, <laughs> these because I don't know them, not because, not because I'm <laughs> not willing to give anyone any free publicity, but um, it's how many of those contain gory details or let, more importantly are hinged upon them? Cause of course you say, you know, you might weave them into your tales, but mm. you wouldn't call your work gory or bloodlust, bloodthirsty. I wouldn't say. Um, no. so I'm wondering like, you know, it, do you find as a writer then there's a bit of tension where you think if I go too far, I could, cause some, someone like myself, for example, that would put me off the work. Is there, do you think that's a thing? Do you think that the writers are a bit or creators, any kind of creator? I think, if I, went, I think if I went further with the gore, I'd sell more. But it's just really? not my personal interest. Yeah. You think I, gore, so I, gore, so I'm actually wrong in my assertion that people I, don't I want just have gore. A, I, I just have a, a hunch, you know. I think that, I think there is something about, <laughs> in, in these books, I'm using books particularly as the example, yeah, but I think sure. there's something about creating violence and gore in a safe way where you can close the covers, you can enjoy the vicarious thrill of something which you might, you would hope never to experience in your life. But it's, it's, it seems to be an outlet for that 
element of our characters which might seek it. And obviously, we've all got different personalities, different sure. life stories. You know, we're from different cultures, but there is a, there is a probably a universal small spark of it in everyone um, that is curious. Um, about don't that. think I got the spark. Andrew. Greater... <laughs> don't think I've got it. <laughs> it's just not been found. It's maybe not been I'm found, the, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I, you know, I okay. I completely empathise with that, and there's absolutely no, you know, there's no discredit at all in having zero interest in gore. I really, I really think that too. I mean, I'd like to go back to Roman times and see a gladiatorial show, mostly mm. because I just want to know what's going on properly for myself. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I'd, I'd probably just do that. I'd put my hands <laughs> over my eyes for everyone. We're all on Zoom, so to hide. Um, I wonder if people did that in the arena. If there were people, they if, must were, there, have done. were there squeamish Romans? Basically, oh, that's a sure. really interesting question. For sure, then they must. We're people, they're people. Yeah, As you said yeah. today, I don't really like it. Okay, maybe like there is this sanitizing of society. Like I said, that it's sort of <laughs> it's very interesting. This because actually, what we're kind of concluding generally mm. is that people like gore still, but it's a little bit like underground, perhaps, or they don't really want to admit it, or. It's perhaps not as out there as it would have been in the classical hmm. period, is what I mean. And not yeah. always, of course. There are lots of people that quite openly like it. But that's just kind of a an interesting thing because, you know, I don't like it. I'm sure there would have been people back then that were like, oh, not for me because yes. people are people, <laughs> right? Maybe they didn't do it like that. Um, I, I, I'll have to think about what Latin. You might be able to tell what Latin, ooh, not for me is. Uh, Absolutely not. We can think on that. We'll <laughs> ponder on that. Um, cool. Well, the, the, the last thing, I think this will be mm. right up your street because, oh, yeah. you know, um, it's a bloody cool area and I want to talk sci-fi. Mm. Um, because, and this this will, I feel, will speak to your work a little bit more, your your written work, your, you know, kind of your books. I, I'm going to talk a bit about dystopia, which is obviously a Greek term. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but it might have come up in QI. Some is it come up on the Ds at QI? Maybe it's a long way to wait for I the said Ds. Before isn't it? my time, yeah. <laughs> but dystopia is Greek for bad place, as opposed to utopia, which is good place. A genre of sci-fi is kind of a version of dystopia. You know, kind of this this obsession we have with things crumbling or places that, mm. I mean, I don't want to use, literally call it a bad place. It's a nice broad term for us to to use to, to discuss things. And, you know, I'm going to start this one with a little tale because people will think, Jazz, this is, we're talking about sci-fi for, this is a classics podcast, they didn't have sci-fi. I, I say you are wrong. They did have sci-fi. I'm not going to pretend it was the most prolific genre that ancient writers chose to write to write about. But there's this amazing story um, called the Verae Historiae by uh, Lucian of Samosota. So it's written in the second century AD. I don't, don't worry about your Latin there, but I'm sure you might be able to have a rough <laughs> idea of what it is. But it means a true story. Um, and this guy, I mean, this, this is this is this is widely considered but although i'm sure there'll be some conjecture over this as being the first uh, sci-fi piece of literature that we have mm. that exists so let's call it the godfather of sci-fi it isn't but it's a mental story and i've got to quickly tell it so it's a parody of all of the um historians that wrote about travels so he's sort of poking fun at the same time, but his story is completely mental. So, you know, these people travel on their journey through the pillars of Hercules. They rock up at a place that, like an island or a place like that, that has a river full of wine. I mean, that sounds awesome already. That's not weird so far. I'm like, that's pretty standard classics. That's all good. But then a whirlwind comes, takes them up to the moon, which is obviously, so we're starting to get a bit mad now. And on the moon, there are no women, only men. 
And the way that they have babies is they're contained within their calves and they just, bur- I assume they just burst out of the calves. I'm not really right. sure when they're ready to get born. Bit weird. And when the men <laughs> die, they just turn into a wisp of smoke. Um, and <laughs> the king of the moon is in, 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 in an intergalactic battle with the king of the sun. Uh, and they're doing that. They're having this fight over the morning star Venus and they want, they want her, I assume. And there's all these completely bizarre armies that form from like, you know, garlic men and horse (laughs) ants and kind of odd things. My favourite ones are cloud centaurs that are wearing armour made of beans. Now, if anyone's listened to my food pod, they'll know that I'm a bit obsessed with beans. Now, weirdly, they have this weird relationship with beans in the ancient world. If you haven't listened to it, Andrew, go to it. Mm. Anyway, it's... It's this mad story. And then they go and visit some other celestial bodies. They eventually come back to, to planet Earth to be swallowed up by um, a gigantic whale, meet some other people knocking about in the whale, eventually get out of the whale and get shipwrecked. And then he says, oh, this story will be continued. So it's a completely insane story. Mm. You know, it's a kind of intergalactic weirdness and everything. So, But the question after all of that to you is, you know, what is the allure of these tales, this dystopian tale? So I'm, I guess mm. I'm asking, what's your muse? Why are you writing these kind of books today? Because I feel like we are really interested in these, these worlds now than we may have been in the past, but you may disagree. Well, I think it's a bit like the violence thing. I think, I think it's a way of taking the world, wrecking it, and then reading about that from a safe distance. I think that's very <laughs> pleasing. Um, is it because we're wrecking it right now? <laughs> I think that will make uh, dystopias less popular as a genre. I think there's, mm. there's plenty enough of that around in the world today. And sure. actually, the, the second book I wrote, which is called The Sanctuary, is about yes. someone who's attempted to create a utopia. And it's about uh, the main character getting to this place, a, a, a private island off the coast of Scotland, where a new society, a new way of existing in the world is being constructed. And he starts digging around and finding out what's going on under the surface of this wonderful new place. But I, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think the, the continued existence of dystopian storylines in the real world is not only a bad thing, but I think it's bad for dystopian storylines. Oh God, yeah, I because, really you know, that. I, I've never, I've never, you know, I, I, I've read and loved The Handmaid's Tale, um, yes. but I think the TV version might just be a bit, not only too gory for me, but, um, but almost too real um, at a, time when yeah. lots of these issues are, are in very live fire situations so for, so yeah well you'll know better than me i didn't know this but i didn't know there was a, a little i keep going subgenres like so many, you could just go forever i think on these subgenres but you can. one is called cli-fi which yes. is climate science fiction essentially isn't mm. it <laughs> whatever we're going to call it climate fiction i guess when i was a kid I might have started to be worried about that, but my God, am I actually really, really worried about that now? You know, yeah. that must be probably the most difficult type of uh, literature for people to read now. Without giving it away, and do stop mm. me if I'm giving too much away of your storyline, I'm wondering if it reminds me a bit of the Atlantis story. Not that, allow, allow me to draw the parallel and then you can just shoot it down if it's not correct. But that is a utopian society that ends up dystopian. Uh, in the end, if you don't want to answer that, we can just do like... No, I don't mind at all. I, uh, I can give away that it doesn't end up with the formation of a perfect utopia unless okay. you've got a very specific set of criteria. Um, okay. Because that's be- and that's because, you know, utopias are inherently a bit less narratively interesting than dystopias. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the attempt to create new worlds and new kinds of living is, I think, something that people are going to stay interested in because... Yeah. It's a question that the entire world is facing now. Is about how we're going to live in the next century. We're close. We're more closely bound together than ever before. 
As yes. a species, we're more powerful than ever before in aggregate. As yes. individuals, we may feel completely powerless. Um, mm -hmm. But the decisions that we all make day by day are going to be the ones that create the shape of the next century. I think that's fascinating. And um, mm. it's it's something we're going to keep wrestling with, I'm sure, in fiction as, as well as we do in, in real life. I mean, there's this one little other myth that I've always loved to talk about, which is Daedalus mm. and Icarus. So when we talk about sci-fi, because mm. we think, how's that sci-fi? Well, I mean, that's about kind of human tension about innovation. Like, yeah. you know, they're not supposed to fly, Daedalus and Icarus. And then obviously we all know what happens to Icarus, spoiler alert, not, not alive anymore. Um, flying too close to the sun and hmm. trying to reach lofty heights that human beings shouldn't do, you know, a version of hubris almost as well. But actually inherent in that is our fear of technological advance as well and innovation, which I think is a big part of sci-fi as well, you know, when you have that kind of tension. Because like you say, that we have this, the notion of what's going on in the climate, dystopian, uh, you know, society, civilizations. Hmm. But another thing is our relationship with technology which is at 40 this year, I'm terrified. In my lifetime, it's going so fast, I can't really keep up. I'm sure the younger people are doing better than me, but it, that's a tension for me. So when I read things, when I feel like they're playing around with innovation, I, I find that fascinating, but I also see that we've always had this slight fear of what is this relationship with when something is a tool that helps humankind and when it, the tool goes too far and we overuse it. Um, it's, it's, it can be framed in such different ways. So oh, sure. what is the current argument about um, carbon emissions from food, for example? You know, one, one side of the argument is saying, well, it's very, it's very unnatural to be, for example, growing alternate meat proteins, even though the carbon emissions are way lower from that. Yeah. Um, it, that's, it's, it, it's unnatural. It's, it's too science-y. It's, it's, it's freaky. <laughs> but if you, if, you, if you kind of turn that on its head, you think, well, yeah, and, and they say that, that food shouldn't be produced in a, you know, a sterile factory or a vat or whatever it might be. But actually, when you look at it from the other way around, the food that we eat already is factory produced, as in, you know, meat is factory produced at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's got n not really anything more to do with nature uh, than, the, yeah. than the alternatives that are, mm. that are being come up with. It's just that because it's the existing framework, we're much more used to it. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's also something that novels ha can have a lot to say about is, what we perceive as natural and unnatural yes. and whether we're going to be able to change our minds about what's natural and what isn't natural. You've got the entire thread of the entire podcast really and what this whole genre <laughs> of thriller is about because in Greek myth that is often you know we can find that theme in most stories this kind of natural unnatural mm. for them perhaps human non-human so you know in summary as usual, as we often summarise on these things, we still have a lot of similar tensions, although they might be more nuanced and complicated today. We still kind of have these relationships, I mm. think, in, in, in all these different ways. But look, we could talk all day. Thank you so much for your time. But there is one little thing that we have to do at the end, which I hopefully you're up for, Andrew. Um, I'll give you a few minutes to deep breathe when I tell you this, but I play a little game at the end with all of my guests called Legitimates, because obviously legit classics, legitimates. Mm. The idea is like, can thrillers and classics be mates, I guess, in some way? But what does it look like to you? The game is you get 60 seconds to just free flow on anything that you've learned or any connections or any musings or anything that's happened over the course of this podcast that you oh, kind of want to summarise. A bit like when you're in a lesson and your teacher at the end, because you know, I'm a teacher, Andrew, I can't help it, it's in my blood. You just got to like free flow it, 
do you reckon you could give that a go if I start you off on a little timer? So I'm just going to get my timer ready and I'm going to count you in. Um, and then just whatever, whatever comes to you, whatever the muse, the muse brings is fine. Uh, are you ready? Are you steady? Go. Okay, so the first thing that I'm going to really take away with me is that uh, the ancient world had their own conception of monsters and that it might there might have been more understanding about that than I had previously realised. CF, um, the example you gave of, I think it was Medusa. And that has, you know, set me back on my heels because I was thinking, ah, well, we've made so much progress. And actually, it's never that simple. It's, it's always a lot more complicated than that. Um, than that people in the ancient world were, you know, were less advanced in their thinking than us. I'm waffling, so I'm going I'm to press on. We talked about uh, dystopias and how depressing they are. We talked about gore, and actually, maybe there isn't a universal tendency towards gore, although there would have been squeamish Romans as well. And I like that thought a lot. And uh, I, I think that uh, that's about it from me. <laughs> I mean, that, literally just on the minute there, just on there the minute. Go. No, that's really good. Well done. I mean, like, you know, my point on this one, I don't, I'm sorry if it bums some people out. Some of that got a bit serious, right? But, you know, it is serious stuff. But, you know, a lot of this today is about Greek mythology. I know we've mentioned a bit about Roman and Greek culture hmm. along the way as well, but... You know, I encourage you to all of you to reread Greek myths because something that I'm passionate about and the work I'm doing is to try and get people to reevaluate what they think about Greek myths and look at the kind of symbolism behind it. So thanks for letting me and, and indulging me in that today and bringing your amazing knowledge of kind of the, the modern thriller because that's something I, I don't know too much about, but do adore. So thank you so much for your time today, thank Andrew. Thank you, Jasmine. And um, everyone, go read Andrew's book. So sound great fun, Andrew. Is that the right way to do it? I think so. <laughs> yeah. You've got to entertain. You have to entertain. <laughs> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The attacker had very good knowledge of banking systems. $2.1 billion in stolen funds. The cyber criminal group. It was the Lazarus group again. These are smart guys. The Lazarus Heist is back for a brand new season. We're following the latest twists and turns in the incredible story of the Lazarus Group hackers. The Lazarus Heist, season two from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.